welcome to Food on the Mind. This is your host, Jeb Stewart Johnston. Uh, I'd like to invite you to head on over to the website if you get a chance. It's at www.foodonthemind.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Grab your free mindful eating guide. Uh, you can even set up a consult call with me. Uh, kind of talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. But mainly for me to help you get better at helping yourself. And now, without further ado, here's our next guest. I mean, I, I think that's a good, it's a good this setup. Is a, this is a great baby, don't die, Jeff. Yeah, yeah it, like it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I grow beards in the winter, but now that I'm in South Carolina, it, it doesn't actually make Never sense. Never cold. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it was, it was like 30 this morning, so like it actually was, okay. but. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's like out of sheer laziness, like, cause, and the other thing is, is cause I get in trouble if I trim it because mm. beard hairs end up everywhere in the bathroom. My wife goes, it's like, this is disgusting. <laughs> so I'm actually, I'm actually better just to go shave it completely off outside at some point okay. <laughs> when it's warmer and then, yeah. and then just keep it short. So yeah, that's my, that's so my I technique. Like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's like your progeny, like your, uh, your people have g- big giant beards and. Swords. Yeah, I feel like you got a bit of a Mike Bledsoe vibe going on. I don't know who Mike Bledsoe. Who's that? Oh, Barbell Shrugs. Oh, oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah. I, yeah this, they, they, I, I like the last time I listened to that show, there was like totally different people that were on it. Oh, uh, yeah, no, like, no. Years so I'm, ago. Like, I'm talking like OG Barbell Shrugs. Oh, okay, like, yeah, uh, yeah. Six, six or seven years ago. Yeah. When uh, Chris Moore, rest in peace, was still alive, it was it was awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. Was it like a CrossFit? one back then or did it felt like it yeah. yeah it was always a bit so they they ran a crossfit gym um and then chris had his own podcast called barbell buddha you'd probably like that actually oh there's, i think i remember yeah, that one yeah 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 I've, uh there's some old episodes they're, they're always fun to listen to well i was always like this is terrible this just shows my bias like i wouldn't listen to it because i just figured it was like an ayn rand reference and uh, uh, you know <laughs> I still hold a lot of animosity towards all the Rush fan libertarians. So two of my best friends in the world are like really, really uh, big libertarians in economics. Mm, yeah. and, uh, and, and like they're like my best. We have totally different like political viewpoints and they're my best friends. So it's like, oh, so anytime anything, oh my God, Jesus, here it comes. It's going to be like college all over again. Listen to them <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a room talking about, you know, because and especially in the 90s in college, we were all like no one really cared about politics that much because we were all screwed. And so everyone was kind of Marxist, and and then like you know, then my friends who were like super libertarian were they just seemed completely insane. So yeah, but yeah, so yeah, so you know, while we're jumping into politics, let's let's jump into something that seems to be gaining even more controversy today. Um, I'm going to do an intro afterwards, uh, but 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 we're gonna let's just start off because I want to make sure that like everyone understands your background, where you come from, uh, because we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, whether or not we can really be healthy at every size and what that even really means. So I, I, I want them to, you know, I think people are going to look, want to know your background because why do you even care about weight, food, um, brain, metabolic health? Like, so, so let, just like, I guess, give a background of, of where you came from, what you do now. And, and so we can kind of explain backstory here. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm basically, I'm an MD, PhD, trained in the UK, mainly, although uh, I did my PhD in Norway. Um, and most of my academic research is in brain injury, particularly neonatal brain injury, but also increasingly various traumatic and other brain injuries later in life. Um, and alongside both my medical training and then my PhD, uh, so I don't work clinically anymore because the process of getting of getting a new medical license in the US was just so arduous that it just wasn't worth it. Although I take a financial hit on that every day, um, but that's fine. Um, and yes, so, so I so I mainly do academic work, but alongside all of that, I've spent a lot of time working both in sort of industry startups, working with like coaching various athletes biochemical like in-depth biochemical testing and all this other kind of stuff and taking what i would call more holistic approaches to long-term health and performance in that group as well as in various chronic disease populations um and i helped found the british society of lifestyle medicine 
Uh, I'm still one of their trustees. I'm associate editor for a new journal run by the academic publisher Wiley called Lifestyle Medicine. Um, and so I'm kind of deeply entrenched in thinking about ways that the environment and our lifestyles affect our, our long-term health and what's modifiable, what's not, not modifiable, what should we be saying is based on personal responsibility, which is probably not as much as most people would think, and what do we think is a societal responsibility, which is probably, for me, maybe most things that affect um, long-term health. And I'll just say straight up, I was uh, brought up in the UK. I took part, I worked in the national healthcare system. It's healthcare free at the point of entry, as I think it should be. I'm a like pretty uh, card-carrying socialist, so may as well just say that up front. Like, that's where a lot. <laughs> That's where a lot of my opinions are going to come from. And I may as well start saying this on podcasts because when I then people like listen to me on a podcast, um, then they follow me on Instagram. And then I like post stuff, which makes it very clear that I'm pro science and mm-hmm. a bit socialist. And then they stop following me. So, you know, if, if you if, if you don't like that stuff, then don't follow me in the first place, I guess. That's probably where we should well- start. But I, I think this actually is a really good jumping off point because I think um, when we talk about this idea of what is healthy, we deviate a lot of times from what we're talking about from a, a, a scientific standpoint, from data, from what we see in population studies. And it's very, very easy uh, and very prolific within the fitness industry, in the non-medical fitness industry, which I see a lot, and actually even within medicine, that it deviates into, like you said, this personal responsibility thing mm, where it becomes yeah. a moral judgment. And, and so yeah. to make it very clear, you are on the point of saying like, hey, this is a societal and um, environmental problem that, that also needs to be treated in that way. So when you s- talk about like, hey, these are markers that I think might be where we see health go into dysregulation – this is not a moral argument. This is just saying like, hey, this is what we know. And so I think that's a really important jumping off point to say to people like, hey, th- this is not a you just need to try harder. You need to be better. This is a we as a society need to, to make inroads here. And so starting with that, what do we look at and say, hey, this is, you know, maybe not a hard line in the sand, but but there's probably a, a floor ceiling here of what we think of as healthy? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, uh, and it's important um, because um, of how you would approach things both from a public health society level as well as on an individual level. And, and it's worth saying like from the outset, and I've, I've recently gotten embroiled in some of this stuff in the academic world because people are increasingly against a lot, you know, vast ways of obesity research because they think that when that gets into the media, gets onto social media, it's going to contribute to weight stigma, which is, I mean, abhorrent to me and certainly possible. But at the same time, we can't say, hang on a second, we shouldn't do obesity research because it's going to you know, contribute to weight stigma because actually you, it's very important to identify those at risk, to identify societal, systemic level changes that we can put in place to reduce risk overall, right? You're, you're not using it to say this person individually should or shouldn't do this. Your the, the data is is population data, and it should be used to inform population level uh, interventions. Um, and and just th- there's a risk that people will take it the wrong way, and it will get portrayed negatively in the media, and we should definitely address that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing this research in, in the first place. Um, and so w- when we think about, say, being overweight or, or obese, and actually also works for underweight people as well. Um, the, the output that I'm interested in the most is some degree of metabolic health, um, which is basically like how well, how good is your body at processing energy? Um, really, that's what, that's what it comes down to. And you, there are various markers that we can use for this. It could be things like fasting blood sugar, uh, fasting insulin, you can use this together, something called a HOMA IR. Uh, blood pressure is super important. Um, some lipid markers can be super important. This is all stuff that most doctors could could do. Um, and these are the things that are associated with downstream health outcomes. So there is an important point made by the Hayes or Health at Every Size community, which is that your BMI, your, your classification of whether you're overweight or obese, is a very poor predictor 
of your overall health. It's absolutely true. At a population level, the, like, the more, more excess adiposity you have, the more likely it is that you will have poor metabolic health, but they are not directly correlated. You can't say because somebody is obese, they will have poor metabolic health. Um, and But that doesn't mean that BMI isn't useful, again, at, at the population level. We really need to separate out what it is we're talking about. Um, and so when you look at metabolic health in people who are obese, depending on how you classify it, somewhere between 7% and 50% of people with obesity um, have good metabolic health. And so the 50% is the absence of diagnosed metabolic syndrome. Um, so metabolic syndrome diagnosed based on, again, lipids, blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, waist circumference. Um, and so 50% of people who are obese, they, they would hit the waist circumference target for metabolic syndrome, but, but wouldn't hit the other ones. So it hasn't like actually affected things like their blood pressure and lipids and blood sugar significantly. And then the, if you go all the way down to the 7%, of, of uh, people who we might say are obese with good metabolic health, they, um, they, um, sorry, I just got a call to inter <laughs> interrupted my thought. Uh, so the 7%, those are people who, who have a low home IR, so good, low uh, resting blood sugar and uh, fasting blood sugar and low fasting insulin. It's worth bearing, so like 7% doesn't sound like very much, but it's worth bearing in mind that overall in the US population, regardless of their BMI, um, I would say that it's probably not that many more percent of people who have really good metabolic health. It's definitely under 20% of all adults in the US have good metabolic health, depending on how you, how, how you measure it, maybe less than 10%. So, you know, super prevalent, like regardless of obesity, it's just that as you gain excess adiposity, the, the likelihood does increase. Yeah, which is interesting because I saw this argument made on... Um on a, a haze so, and, and just for for clarification haze health at every size or healthy at every size is, is, is there's different determining factors so i hate to lump everyone in together yeah um but i do uh, because i there's a lot of this movement that that me in my personal practice i i find value in in really understanding weight stigma and and to 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 see that uh but but on the other hand i, I saw one um argument from uh kind of anti-diet uh person and her argument was a very strange one to me, but it was like, hey, it was kind of a chicken and the egg thing. She was saying, is it the excess adiposity that is leading to the metabolic dysfunction or is the metabolic dysfunction leading to the excess adiposity? And it was kind of like, I well, mean, I, I think from the basic science, we're fairly certain it's the former. Mm. Um, and, and I don't think there's really much argument there. I mean, if you look at the steps that lead to systemic insulin resistance. And again, this using animal models, it's very difficult to do it in humans. But what you see is that once you reach some kind of personal limit, and so this is kind of like a theoretical framework just to think about it. Every, every person has a personal fat threshold. Um, and, and once you start to reach that, then basically the signals coming out from the fat cells are like, you know, can't take any more, like can no longer act as a buffer um, for, for like caloric intake. Um, and then that's when you start to see spillover that affects the liver, affects the rest of the body. So it definitely seems to be that the excess adiposity is, is, is a big factor driving that. However, the amount of fat that you need to gain as an individual to start to see that is hugely variable. And it depends both on some like background and environmental factors because oxidative stress information is super important. So if you're physically or psychologically stressed, you're exposed to a load of environmental toxins because of um, like housing redlining that's put you near some some refinery plant because of systemic like racism meant that you couldn't buy a house anywhere else or your family couldn't buy a house anywhere else. Like that's going to affect how much fat that you can gain before you start to see these problems. So, so I, I think it's definitely like I definitely think of it as a fat centric model, but there's all these other things that affect like how big of a how big and healthy of a buffer. That, that you have but i think the the science is reasonably well decided on that which i think that th then to, to kind of jump back into that public health model the fact that 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 personal fat threshold could be lowered by environmental uh you know i, I mean i'm assuming even epigenetic uh hmm. factors could yeah. factor into all this i mean we're really talking about a truly systemic problem that again you know, I think the 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 argument 
seems to live in this personal uh, uh, individual basis, but th we're not going to fix it like that. If, if, if we're actually lowering the bar for people who are already at risk and making it even harder. Yeah. So, so if you look at, um, so in the U S if you look at the amount of, uh, fat tissue that you can accumulate before you get, uh, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, white people seem to be able to gain more fat than black people. The problem is that when you think about it like that, it becomes extrapolated as there is a biological effect of being black that affects your personal fat threshold, which is a hundred percent not true. There is no, there is no reason to, to, to think to think about it like that. And like, there's no evidence to support that. There's no evidence to, to support a biological effect of blackness on health outcomes. It is a proxy for all these other things, you know, um, housing insecurity and stress and systemic racism and like, like environmental exposures, again, much worse in black and poorer communities because you've been shoved next to some kind of oil refinery or something like that. Like, all these yeah. things play a role. And then in the study, all you have to look at it is, is this person white or black? Um, yeah. and, and it just gets completely misinterpreted because it's just a proxy for all this other stuff that's happening. Um, and so that, but I, but I still think that that's fairly good evidence you know, as much as we can have to support that on a societal level, there are all these things that are driving our capacity to be able to handle this, you know, these caloric insults, this caloric buffer that, that, that is then going to change our personal fat threshold, if you want to call it that, which, which then affects our long-term metabolic health, but it's absolutely happening on a societal level. It's not just because certain people are greedier or lazier, which is how, how it often gets portrayed. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's there's such a a uh, a disconnect, and and you know generally, I mean, I know that you you kind of have a couple toes in the fitness industry, but luckily you don't you're not knee deep in it quite as much as I am. <laughs> so, because there there, I mean, you know, I'm, there's actually I'm working on something now that that's in my brain. I'm I'm titling like how many different ways can people in fitness call fat people lazy. And it's, I don't think they even realize they do it, but you know, my, my favorite is always like, it's, 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 it's cheap to eat healthy. You know, you're just being lazy. And I'm like, you do realize, right. That people that, that a might live in a food desert or, or let's say that, that they're, they're, they're working two jobs because they make $7 an hour. Um, and they've got to pay realize, for health They've got to pay for health insurance. Sure. Right. And, and someone says, Oh, but you can just, you can cook beans and slow cook this thing. And I'm like, so, you realize that they don't have six hours a day to sit and do all the, but it's this, this idea of like, Oh, it's just you. This is how we fix it is you need to just stop being lazy. And, and they're saying, I'm not saying that. And it's like, you don't realize you're saying that because you're, you're speaking from a place of not understanding. Um, but this is, this is, again, it's, it's, it's really, it's why this stuff is so hard. It's so ingrained in our, in our society. Now, Within this personal fat threshold, I know this is probably going to be kind of, you know, uh, um, a, a logic jump here. But do you see anything that you think would be the the big rocks that that could go after to hopefully help raise that that threshold? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really great great question. And um, in reality, I, so I think the the rocks are often going to be like very similar if we're talking like regardless of um of like the scenario are we talking about long-term health are we talking about long-term performance um i think they're all very similar right so we, we think about like movement right and obviously this has to be um predicated on the fact that somebody has the time and the capacity and the cognitive space to be able to add this stuff in and and, and showing and like that being like a, a part of and again that, that should be part of like this like society rather than saying you just have to move more it's, it's your own personal responsibility right i think we know we've created this obesogenic environment where nobody has to move um and right that, that's that's a problem um and that only people with a certain amount of um power and privilege can can actually then build that in to their day right um but it but the the best example that i have and so um of uh, where, you, where you can have quite significant excess adiposity and still be in good metabolic health is sumo wrestlers, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not likening 
the average US person to a sumo wrestler, but they there's very nice data on the metabolic health of sumo wrestlers who have obviously very large subcutaneous adipose stores, train incredibly hard and eat vast amounts of food. But because they're pushing so much through the system, they remain in very good metabolic health. They have good muscle mass or exceptional muscle mass, mm -hmm. um, as you know, as well as being in a in a high flux state, as you would call it. And so, like, mm -hmm. they have they're really good at drawing large amounts of energy through the system. So that's like that's one. But um, it it could be um, you know nutrient nutrient status super important because like, there's lots of uh, data to show that if you're deficient in certain nutrients which again is going to be very common if you live in a food desert and all you've got is mm -hmm. um, access to highly processed refined fast foods um, you know individual nutrients of which there are five or ten at least can affect uh, like your oxidative stress status your inflammation status which, which then is going to be expressed as say a reduction uh, in your personal fat threshold, but also loads of other stuff like, say, worsened immunity, which is going to increase your susceptibility to COVID-19, right? You know, the, like all of it is is intimately interconnected. So nutrient status, movement, sleep and psychological stress, but then there's also systemic stress. So, so I mean, the problem is that these things are all the same, right? If you're ever going to talk to somebody about how to improve their overall health or their performance, you're going to talk about movement, diet and diet quality, um, sleep, stress, social connection, Right, it's this, it's all the same stuff. So uh, some of this, you know, you can address at the individual level because you're gonna have to find what's the what's the lowest hanging fruit for this person that a is is probably gonna be the thing that's affecting them the most and is something that they can easily change. And then there's also gonna be uh, the societal level stuff that you'd have that you'd have to um, do at the same time. But it's always gonna be like those rocks are always gonna be the same rocks, and it's not particularly sexy, but that's what it always comes back down to. Yeah. You know, it, it's the solutions are unfortunately like it seems like the, the solutions are all the same, or I should say the steps towards the solution are all the same. It's how do we therefore try to implement them on a, a grand scope that that mm. is the actual problem. So a, a thing that keeps coming up here is um, inflammation, and, and I mm. think. I know among my clients, among the people I work with, it's kind of a buzzword and no one actually really knows what it means and just says it. So can we talk about inflammation, about what it is, what its role is and, and why and how we measure it? Yeah, it's a, again, a fabulous question. And the, the easiest way to think about inflammation to start with is like if you have an acute injury, right? Like some, and the, there are the four cardinal signs of inflammation, which are rubor, calor, dolor, and um, one other one. But it's basically that's Latin for swelling, redness, um, pain, and uh, heat. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the four. And so like that's what you'll see if you acutely injure yourself. Um, and so right, that's it, it's it's an important part of the healing process, right? It's it requires you know the immune system comes in. It clears out the debris, whatever's been injured, um, and then starts to, you know, repair and, and build stuff back in over time. And that's the job of the immune system. And it's the same thing, right? When you get sick, your symptoms, you know, fever, chills, muscle aches, all that kind of stuff, that is not the bug, the virus or the bacteria that's causing the problem, right? It's your immune system responding to it. Um, and so, and again, that's important. You find the bug, clear it clear whatever damage it caused, and then repair it. Now, the problem is, the kind of inflammation that we're talking about in this setting is um, like chronic, but chronic inflammation that you can't really see that well, um, and because it happens at such a low level. And again, the problem comes from the fact that it's, it's caused by uh, something that, again, is continuously there. Um, and it, 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 can, it can be both like an actual exposure, so um, air pollution, uh, you know, water, uh, water pollution, like those are things that are just going to be constantly in your environment and they cause this chronic inflammatory response. Those are maybe some of the, the things that a large number of people are exposed to and it's something that's very difficult for them to get rid of because the problem is that if you don't get rid of the source, you're just going to get a continuous sort of low level response to it. Um, and the, when you say, when we ask about how we measure it, Probably the easiest way that we might talk about it is you do a blood test for something called CRP, 
C-reactive protein, maybe HSCRP, high-sensitive C-reactive protein. It's very easy to get. Um, it's very cheap. Um, and it gives you kind of like a sense of like how activated is the immune system right now. So like when you're responding to something, you produce um, what we call cytokines. These are the protein messengers that your immune system use to uses to communicate. One of those is interleukin-6, IL-6, goes to the liver, CRP is made, and you measure the CRP. Um, and this could be like, could happen after a hard workout, could happen after a snake bite in the Costa Rican jungle, could happen after <laughs> after you're exposed to car fumes, right? It, it's kind of, a, it's non-specific. Um, and we know that like the higher your CRP level, in general, increased risk for heart disease, certain cancers, you know, type 2 diabetes, all this stuff kind of downstream um, of there. So we can, we can measure it to a degree. The problem is that there are some things that we do to ourselves that cause an inflammatory response that we can't measure. So uh, an example would be, and it's because the inflammation is happening at the tissue level, that if that tissue is deep inside your body, you can't get at it. Um, and so the best example that I can think of is high volume, high intensity endurance exercise, which is associated long term with scarring of the atria which is the top part of the heart, which leads to eventually leads to AFib. Um, and in, if you try and create AFib in animal models, that's what you make them do. You make them go out and like run as hard as they can for an hour every day, which is what some people think is a healthy way to exercise. <laughs> um, and, and over time, their heart becomes scarred in, in the, like, the rhythm-making portions, and eventually they get, they get AFib. The problem is that you can't measure that inflammation that scarring that injury in a blood test very well because it's happening at the tissue level so there are some non-specific markers crp is probably the best and most easily accessible one but unfortunately there are there are other things that could be going on that at the moment we're not that great at measuring and you can do like nowadays you do super fancy imaging we're always trying to develop new biomarkers but you know it's research-based they're expensive they're not easily accessible right so you know with the tools that we have CRP is probably the, the one of the best things that we can use. Yeah, and and I, I think it's the the double edged sword of the the inflammation talk is that it is vitally important to be aware of like that this is you know systemic inflammation is something that can obviously lead to a lot of downstream negative effects. Yeah. At the same time, just assuming you have inflammation because of some <laughs> like like. It's, you know, the, the thing I get a lot of is like, oh, you know, I, I, I must have a lot of inflammation. I had, you know, bread last night. And it's mm. like, well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't I don't know that, like, you know, I don't really know that the, the two pound weight gain overnight is because of systemic inflammation or if it's uh, just that you actually ate 2000 extra calories. Yeah. Last night. <laughs> and then a lot and, and most of it was carbohydrate and a load of water came right. on board and like wait six hours, you'll peer off and you know like all that will be gone. Yeah, so so this is the problem is that we 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 assign these things to this stuff to kind of make it good or bad, right? A food is good or bad because mm -hmm. it's inflammatory or pro inflammatory, which is just like a hundred percent nonsense. Um because like yeah, so in an individual, like some people don't tolerate gluten very well. Um mm -hmm. Like some, like I know a lot of people who would say no human should ever eat gluten. I don't agree with that. Um, there are, you know, there are people who obviously have celiac disease. There are other people who who have some kind of intolerance. I I I believe does exist to gluten. It's maybe maximum ten percent of people, and maybe that's going to cause some kind of inflammatory response. Um, but it doesn't make it good or bad. It just is what it is. Uh, I, I think overall, if you have a very poor dietary pattern, and that's going to include lots of refined carbohydrates, because big glucose spikes certainly can cause some kind of inflammatory um, response. Um, certain like processed oils also seem to, you know, worsen inflammatory responses. And at the same time, they tend to be nutrient deficient, which just means that you can't really handle this stuff properly because you don't have the minerals and nutrients cofactors for enzymes on board to help deal with this stuff. I think in general, we could say that the standard American diet is a pro-inflammatory dietary pattern, but that doesn't then mean that I can say this food is good or bad because it causes inflammation or not. So, again, because you know, and and I, and I will, um, I'll do a little uh, uh, promo here. It's, it's part of the. I, I'm some of these are leading questions because I, I, you know, having taken uh, Tommy and Ben's uh, blood blood work uh, course, it 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 made it's made me think a lot more about this stuff that I kind of honestly I kind of brushed off. 
uh, because it was normally coming from people that like were just kind of making words up and putting it in there, but like actually seeing it from uh, a medical model, from a clinical model, from a research model, it's made me say, okay, so, so if I can actually see it and it's actually like in my blood work, these are these, here's where I can actually take it and, and do something useful with it instead of just yeah. like saying, Oh, I, I feel like I have inflammation. So therefore something's this food is bad. And again, the idea that inflammation in and of itself is normally a positive thing because it's helping you to heal. Mm. So like you said, kind of separating that. Now and, we start well, talking. I just, I just, I just, I just wanted to like, uh, like just attach onto that. The, the massive importance of what we think on our physiology. Um, and so when people are talking about this stuff, you're gonna, in, right, and, and you think you may be trying to do good, right? Don't eat gluten because it's pro-inflammatory and inflammation is bad, right? So what happens then is the people who listen to that and they internalize it, and people do, um, is they think, well, I ate this, like, I, ate, I ate this bread, it's pro-inflammatory, they create this negative thought process about it. That negative thought process is probably having a much bigger effect on their physiology than the bread was in the mm -hmm. first place. And we have loads of examples of how, how we think about um, an exposure, like something we eat or our genetics, it can have a negative effect. It directly affects our physiology like, and potentially more than the thing itself does. So, so when people talk like this and they talk in this black and white way and they say, this is good or bad, this is inflammatory, pro-inflammatory, this will make you fat, whatever, this will make you shredded. I mean, you're, you're causing direct harm because of the way you're changing like the way people think about this stuff. So, so like, it's really important to not do that. I think that's such a, a huge thing that gets missed is um, physiology and psychology. People try to keep them so separate. Um, but this, it reminds me, there's this great show. It's on Vice. It's called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. I don't know if uh, you've seen, seen it. I've seen a couple of episodes. Okay. Of that, yeah. So this guy's a chemist and he like basically like he loves psychedelics. So he just, but, but there's a scene where he goes to this big seminar uh, about toad, which is like this, these toads that people milk and then smoke the thing. And, and he's basically like, all right, this is cool. Like you guys like do this, but you're, you're killing like basically an endangered species. And it's not, you, you guys are like all these hippies. He's like, we can make this stuff in a lab. He's like, I just made some yesterday. He's like, it's really easy. Like, and this guy says, well, I've done both. And I really feel like I get a different thing from when I squirted out of this toad. Don't you think the soul of the toad has something to do with it? And so, like, just seeing this, like, you know, this chemist, you know, face just drop. And he just says, you know, I've analyzed the, the chemical makeup. And he's like, I choose to live in an evidence-based world. Yeah. I and it's just like seeing his toad, I couldn't find any toad, any toad soul in my sample. So. And, and he's like, just seeing his face, I'm like, I'm sure this is my face a lot of times when I'm talking to clients. <laughs> um, but he's like, this is what I, he's like, now I don't doubt that you feel differently mm. because when you think about it and you assign those, like you said, you're assigning this view to it, then absolutely that maybe you feel, but from a, a, a chemical standpoint, you're not getting anything different. Like you're, yeah. but you, what your brain can do is a whole other, I mean, considering it's a psychedelic drug on top of that, but, but it was just one of those moments I'm watching it and I just laugh and I like rewind it and make my wife watch it like three times. Just that scene, <laughs> this face just boom. And just going, okay, how do I answer this? And people still invite me to come back and talk to them about it. Um, so in there, you know, one of the things I wanted to jump into too is, is because of your, background working especially with traumatic brain injury you you uh fall a lot into a you know a, a, a low carb high fat camp because of obviously the uh the effects that that carbohydrates have on on tbi which is a whole fascinating topic in and of itself but as far as for people who are um potentially in this metabolic dysregulation is there in your mind, an advantage to a certain macronutrient profile for these people? Um, so yes, yes and yes and no. Um, and, and there are short term, like postprandial, like within a meal effects that are potentially important long term if they're repeated multiple times. And then there are the long term effects like on overall metabolic health. So we have a fairly good idea that's that the, the size of the peak of the glucose after your meal, like so, which is like the amount of glucose, like blood sugar you suddenly have like circulating can have an effect on a number of things, including like particularly the health of your arteries and your risk of 
of atherosclerosis, which is obviously the, the, the downstream cause or upstream cause of, of a heart attack. And, and so if you are somebody who is metabolic, metabolically dysregulated, it's likely that for a given carbohydrate load, you will have a bigger spike in blood sugar. It's not guaranteed. Uh, and again, from person to person, different carbohydrate sources will cause different spikes. And there are some really nice papers, some older and some just coming out last year, that basically say that the amount of carbohydrate in a meal and the source of the carbohydrate, you know, on a population level, maybe only tell you 20 to 50% of the actual glucose spike. Other than that, the rest is all like super individual and meal context and all this kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. if, if you're interested in it, you have to kind of figure out which carbohydrate sources for me cause very large spikes. Um, and sometimes, and it's, sometimes it's not intuitive at all. Like the glycemic index basically means to throw it away. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. Um, and so one of the best ways to minimize the, your, the spike in glucose after a meal is to not eat any carbohydrates. Absolutely. Shown, like shown very nicely by individually in a meal and, probably, and the total area under the curve and total glucose spikes over the day. You just don't eat carbs. You don't get a big glucose spike. Right. So that's useful in that sort of short term. Um, however, if you just restrict carbohydrates and nothing else changes, that's not going to automatically improve the overall health of your metabolism. What you're doing is your is basically symptom control mm -hmm. in the setting of, of metabolic uh, uh, like dysregulation. What you need in order to improve your metabolic health is usually either if it's if it's driven by sort of exposures, inflammation, oxidative stress, personal fat threshold, all that, changing your personal fat threshold, all that kind of stuff, then you need to figure out what those are and, and get rid of them. Or again, on a population level, most likely you need to improve your body composition. Mm -hmm. And so your weight, I don't care about, but how much of it is body fat? How much of it is, is muscle mass? Um, and if you can improve that, then the other stuff is going to improve. And when you look across every dietary intervention, every randomized controlled trial, comparing different types of diets, different macronutrient contents, the amount that your metabolic health improves is directly proportional to the amount of body fat that you lost and how you got there doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. So longer term, whatever it is that takes to improve that person's body composition, I don't think low carb versus any other diet is, is particularly beneficial other than um, altering blood sugar dynamics in the, in the short term. Um, I personally am a big fan of carb, lower carbohydrate approaches because the, the people that I know and myself personally, obviously, I'm biased by my personal experience, it, it's just much more sustainable. And you also are more likely to get um, more nutrient-dense foods and more protein, which has a whole load of other benefits. So that doesn't mean that, but again, like I said, it doesn't matter how you do it. So however works for you to improve your body composition, and that's going to require some kind of um, caloric restriction, adequate protein, and probably resistance training to increase mm -hmm. muscle mass. However you do that, I don't care. Like that's what's going to be the most important thing to improve metabolic health. So short-term benefits, but longer term, it doesn't really matter. That's just, you, you just got to get, get to get to that state. I, you know, it's funny you say that for, for you and for other people that, that you found it to be much more sustainable because the argument from the other camp is always that low carb just isn't sustainable. And I think some, I mean, first of all, I, I don't know, maybe Ben sent me the study. I just, this past week, someone sent a meta-analysis that showed that um, that adherence on almost every diet is pretty much across the board the same. There's not really a big difference when you look at it long-term and adherence mm -hmm. levels. Um, that said, because you know, that's always the argument against low-carb is that people can't, and I think, in my view, what was extrapolated from that was people were looking at keto. And saying that like being keto, being in ketosis is not sustainable. You're going to have carbs. You're going to gain, you know, five pounds overnight. And it's like, well, maybe, but, but does that, if you're, if, if that's the case, does every single person that has a bunch of carbs one night gains that five pounds, then just give up and just start eating, you know, just rice for every, I mean, I, I don't think so. I think um, it's, I'm, 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 I'm way more malleable in my ideology about diets now than I, I used to be. Now I'm kind of like, I think it's probably just as sustainable for everyone. And I am actually in personal bias. I am now on the Tommy Wood diet. Uh, I'm currently eating about 325 grams of protein a day, um, which honestly, it, it makes calorie control really easy. Yeah. 
It's, I mean, I have I eat broccoli slaw, peppers and onions, and meat. And then I have rice around my workouts. And I'm full all the time. I mean, I'm still getting about 3,000 calories from just meat. But it's, it, it does, it creates, it creates its own uh, kind of bumpers. The, so, so this is the thing. And um, somebody I really like in this space is uh, uh, Dr. Ted Naiman. He's actually local to me. He's got... Uh, a book and a website called the PE, the Protein to Energy Diet. So it's basically looking at foods by uh, their protein content relative to their total caloric content. And beyond that, it's basically completely agnostic to what that food is. Yeah. Um, and if, if you target a gram plus of uh, protein per pound of body weight, and to hit that target, like other stuff is just gonna have to fall by the wayside. And immediately, diet quality improves, satiety improves, um, and and so I and that's I think the, the one of the reasons why I think low carb is sustainable for me and for lots of other people is because you're much more likely to get protein rich foods. I'm not a big like um, unless you have a neuro particularly a neurological disorder which benefits from a certain level of ketones. I don't think keto in and of itself is particularly exciting or or interesting, um, and the that is very difficult to sustain because you've basically got to restrict protein as well as carbohydrates right. to get a certain level of ketosis. And you've basically got to slam like heavy cream to get yeah. like enough calories down the hatch. And like that, I agree that is not sustainable uh, mm -hmm. for, for most people. Um, and I, and also pretty nutrient deficient. Like there's nothing like it's really hard to get loads of really high quality nutrients on a very, very high fat diet. Um, you have to work hard at that as well. So, so that's why. So, like, reducing overall, particularly refined, but carbo I mean, obviously, I I eat carbohydrates. So I'm not on a ketogenic diet. Um, but I'm certainly lower carbohydrate than maybe like the average person. Um, but you know, taking it all the way, I think you can do that for certain medical conditions. Absolutely. If I if I got a TBI, immediately I'm going on a right. ketogenic diet. Right. Um, but if you're just trying to maintain a, a certain body composition and overall health, then then I think protein is, is is your best target and how the rest you get there and doesn't really matter. Um, the one caveat to that being that um, if you lower your carbohydrate intake, you probably have to increase your protein intake to get the same anabolic stimulus right. or the same retention of muscle mass. So some people do very well on relatively lower protein diets because they have low fat diets with a huge amount of carbohydrate in. And that works great for some people. It's just worth remembering that protein and carbohydrates are both insulinogenic which is going to be protecting your muscle mass and so if you have less carbohydrates you probably need to again increase more increase your protein intake to get the same sort of overall balance um, of muscle mass retention well just from an observational standpoint of people i work with you know i i i, I actually get into these these battles personally with, with with other practitioners at time because they'll say oh you know why are you trying to push this protein agenda on people if they just don't want to eat it? i was like you know, because I know that this is the lever. This is the lever. First of all, I don't want them to lose muscle mass. And I know every time someone says to me, I can't eat this much. I'm like, you, you can, it's, you do, you don't want to eat the protein. You want to eat the fats and carbs. So a real easy way to change the behaviors is to change the, the, the availability of those things. And it's like, even if I can just get you for a couple of weeks, to change the, your your structure, your viewpoint, to be like, okay, I'm just going to focus on protein because, like you said, once you get the protein in there, plus I'm, you know, saying, hey, hey we're going to get some vegetables in there. You crowd the other things out, and that doesn't mean they don't ever come back in, but it at least says like, hey, this is how I can build a sustainable diet. And then when I do go and have a cheeseburger on Friday night with my friends, like it didn't just destroy my whole week. Like, and and this is again, and again, you have to right. This this stuff is going to happen. And so there shouldn't be any um, like morality attached to it, right? Mm -hmm. So if like dietary patterns are what matter absolutely the most, rather than individual dietary events, right? So if if you eat a certain way, ten, or, you know, how many how many meals do you have a week? Twenty one, assuming you have three, right? Yeah. You eat that twenty meals out of the week, and then one meal just happens to you know to be off plan. Overall, it's probably going to balance out, especially as if, if you improve other aspects of your environment. So uh, if you can sleep and stress and move and all these other things, you become much, much better at understanding and detecting satiety cues. 
And so one of the reasons why, you know, when you just turn around and say, hey, obese people are just greedy and lazy, they have been put in an environment where pretty much all the inputs make it so that society cues don't work anymore, right? So then expecting them to somehow ha like figure their way around that is going to be impossible. Mm -hmm. So if you can if you can fix some of these environmental things, satiety cues become much be much better. You, like they actually work like they're supposed to. And then so say you have like a massive cheeseburger and fries or whatever Friday night. On Saturday you just won't be hungry, so yeah. you eat less. Right. That's, that's, that's how caloric balance is supposed to work. But you have to be in an environment that allows satiety cues to do their job. And, and you know, interesting you say that because we come back around to these other things. Then all of a sudden, you know, your, your satiety cues are screwed. And, and so you're eating things that are probably leading to, you know, inflammation. Maybe you're obese. So your sleep is poor. or You have apnea. So then we're talking mm -hmm. further inflammation. Uh, our sleep is crap. So then hormones are off. Satiety is worse again. And it's just like a, it's cyclical then and it just keeps yeah. getting worse and worse and and yeah. and and again that's why i think and I, I you know i'm not to simplify things too much but but saying like that's a like there's a couple of like you said big levers and i think protein exercise movement like sleep like they're they're not sexy but but man when you if you can nail a few of those things a lot of other stuff starts to happen yeah yeah absolutely um and what one thing that um, another thing that goes with the protein, I think, um, is like the caloric density of the food, right? And we have yeah. some really nice, uh, we have some really nice data to suggest that if you're, you're, if you have, if the food that you're eating, the meal that you eat has more than one and a half calories per gram on average, which is basically anything processed, refi refined carbohydrates, like both refined carbohydrates, refined fats. Once you get over that threshold, satiety cues don't work anymore. Um, and there was this re really nice, did you see the recent Kevin Hall paper where they compared a plant-based low-fat diet to an animal-based low-carb diet? No. Um, yeah, so they put, so it's just, it just got published in Nature Medicine this week. It's been out for, in, as a preprint for several months, so I've, I've seen it before. But okay. basically, they took people and they, like, two weeks on these two different diets, uh, plant-based, uh, low-fat, animal-based, low-carb. And you think it's going to be, like some kind of way to say what well, is plant-based versus animal-based better um and but no the way it was designed just made that completely impossible to to determine <laughs> because right if you put people on an animal-based low-carb diet it's a key, like ketogenic diet and these guys were in ketosis the calorie density of that diet was double what it was oh. on the plant-based low-fat diet 1.1 calories per gram under the threshold versus 2.2 calories per gram over the threshold and the people on the low-carb diet ate more food because they're eating a more calorie-dense diet. It's got nothing to do whether it's made from animals or plants, um, right? And like then all of a sudden they're like, well, here you go. You can't eat keto because you'll overeat. Yeah, that's because they're basically chowing down on fatty sausages and drinking heavy cream. Like, of course, of course they're yeah. going to eat more. Like, it's impossible to regulate that. So... This is something that, that's, that, that, that's super important. And again, like, I don't expect somebody to like, calculate how many calories per gram that their meal has. But you know, as soon as you start to introduce um, sort of lean proteins and vegetables, automatically you're there, mm -hmm. right? The ma magical things that, 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 that fix that whole problem. Well, it's, you, know, you, you always hear this like, oh, we need to go back to this or go back to that. And really the, the whole basis of, of, of this kind of, and, and not, not even like paleo, just like 50 years ago diet is that there, there wasn't a very complicated, our diets weren't complicated. And me growing up, I ate probably the exact same way my dad ate. And, and my dad hates vegetables. Like, we'll say that. And everyone in my family lives to like 95 years old. They smoke, they drink, they eat really, you know, genetically. But he, he grew up, he hated vegetables. My brother's the same way. I didn't really enjoy them. Um, but we always had some kind of vegetable, but we always had our meals always look the same. It was like a starch and we would call it a starch, a vegetable and a meat, like, and it was mostly meat, but it was like every night we had some kind of steak or chicken or, and that's how I still eat. And so it's, it's just a very simple way to look at food, but it's kind of been lost. And, but it's also like, it seems that that is kind of a real simple basis. If you, if your meat is just, you know, yeah, there's animal fat in there. Don't put yeah. a slop of butter on top of it. You're probably going to be okay. You know, your veg vegetables, try again. And I think, you know, it's always the additive thing of like adding the butter or the, it, it, that changes the density of the, the meal. Like you said, and it's, it's, um, this is, it, so that's exactly how, so I, I think about my, uh, my Icelandic family and my grandparents and obviously eating with them. And that's exactly how it looked. And I often, 
you know, it's worth bearing in mind. I, I, you can't, I couldn't measure genetics and tell you whether you should eat a low carb or a low fat diet. Though plenty of people will tell you that they can. That's garbage. If anybody tells you, sells you, a, sells you a nutrigenomics, a nutrigenomics test, tell them where to go because it's just complete BS. However, I think there is some data that, that, that talks about like where your ancestry is from, and then like potentially using that to inform what might be most sustainable for you, right? So if I think about my, I'm, I'm of Northern European descent, I have Scandinavian family. Um, you ever try looking for a starchy carbohydrate in Norway in the winter, right? <laughs> not going to happen. Um, so, so like maybe that's one of the reasons why I, I feel better on a lower carbohydrate diet because there just aren't any carbohydrates in the highlands of Iceland, I promise you, uh, other than a few berries in the summer. Uh, but people who live close to the equator, uh, you can certainly, you know, or whose families, um, you know, recent ancestors live close to the equator certainly will have had much more um, like greater availability of carbohydrates throughout the year. So like some of that is potentially uh, useful to people. But yeah, I'm thinking like all of the, particularly the women on my Icelandic side of the family live well into their 90s. And like all, all they ate was essentially meat and like maybe there's a cabbage or a root vegetable and some potatoes occasionally. But I mean, that's it. Uh, my yeah. grandma started to make salads later in life because I think my mum told her that she should and they were healthy. But I mean, by that point. Yeah. You already have plenty of ancestors living, you know, to 100 years old and make it whether they eat salad or not. Well, and, uh, you know, it, that kind of ties into, uh, I, was, I think it was uh, Gav Mandaro was talking about gut microbiome stuff and how everyone says like, oh, you should you should eat kimchi. And she's like, yeah, kimchi is great if you're Korean and your <laughs> gut microbiome. She's like, but if you're just a like, it doesn't necessarily convey across all boundaries. Um, and so it's, it is kind of that like, like. Hey, maybe it, I mean, yeah, don't use your genetics to determine anything because, yeah. you know, most of us at I this actually, point genetically are mashed up. Yeah, well, that, and that's true. And so, like, I can say now, right, Northern European versus Central African heritage in 100 years time, that m may not even may be not, yeah. relevant at all. Right. And so this this stuff is probably going to get more complicated over time as as you become more, um, you know, ethnically mixed, if you want to call it that, uh, for want of a better word. But. Um, it is worth bearing in mind, I actually have a paper currently under review where we talk about the fact that, you know, a healthy gut can, can really derive um, supportive nutrients from almost any dietary pattern. So everybody's like, oh, you've got to have fiber so that your bacteria can turn into short-term fatty acids to support uh, like gut function. Actually, if you eat a lot of protein, those, uh, that protein can be fermented by different bacteria into other substrates, but that support gut health just as well. So so actually your gut, and which makes perfect sense, right? We have colonized the entire planet um, and been able to live with almost like as, as vast array of different dietary patterns as you could possibly imagine. So to think that like, as we moved further north and sources of fiber became more scarce because like edible plants became more scarce, to suddenly think that our guts just fell apart and stopped working properly, like that's insane. So like the gut is super flexible in terms of it's like what it can tolerate. And so we, we generate a lot of problems by like saying this is a healthy dietary pattern. This is food that creates a healthy gut microbiota because I think we can show by the fact that we have such like a diverse colonization of the planet and different ancestral diets that that, that just simply can't be true. But it's another simple story that, that creates a lot of problems. That's yeah, that's I mean, that's pretty fast again. And, you know, back to that psychology versus physiology thing is is by you know it almost creates that fragile mindset of like oh well if i eat this then then of course that explains why i didn't perform well or why i yeah. you know didn't sleep well or whatever it might be um that's this, that's is, one actually... of, this is one of my like, my favorite things to remind people of about like if you, again if you think about where humans have survived and thrived the human body is fabulously robust and resilient and adaptable you just have to like there are some things that are important right which we talked about in terms of stress and sleep and social connection and stuff and but if that stuff is in place as much as it can be you can basically handle anything um and so like this negative self-talk that we create about this food being like good or bad or this gut microbiota being good or bad or these genetics being good or bad all of that undoes like this this incredible like physiological resilience that the human body has so i think really kind of to to bring this 
back full circle, we really kind of delved into which I think is awesome. I mean, it really got into stuff that I think is actually really applicable to, to real people as opposed to theoretical. Like, uh, we can be healthier at different sizes. Mm. The odds are just not in our favor if we are carrying excess body fat. Yeah, but that's essentially what it is. Like the 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 Hayes health healthy every size movement makes great a great point. Well, two great points. One that when we focus on weight, we create this sort of this stigma that has a negative effect on people's physiology, um, or and and their mental health. And to a certain and like that's absolutely the case. And like when we create, like when we get people to diet, um, or sort of recreate this like focus on diet culture, particularly people who are susceptible or have a history of eating disorders, it can certainly have a negative effect on them. But then what that leads to is these false dichotomies, which is that because BMI isn't a perfect predictor of health, we shouldn't use it. Or because some people are negatively affected, uh, like mentally when they diet, nobody should diet. Um, or because weight loss doesn't perfectly predict how much healthier you're going to be, nobody should lose weight. Like these, like you, you just can't. Like those are the narratives that are created, but they're just they're just not true. Like we have to accept that yes, both things are possible, but um, we look at we look at data on a population level. So yes, as you have increased excess adiposity, your likelihood of good metabolic health does decrease. Um, on an individual level, we can measure that. I think that that should be something that's baked into the healthcare system. You shouldn't have to pay for it in a civilized society. I'm sorry. Um, and then, like, this is where things become baked into like that's a societal change factor. It's not like you, you should that you shouldn't bear the brunt of that. This is something that we should do because we want a healthier society, which is cheaper overall, by the way. Um, and you, then you'd have to pay less taxes, maybe. Um, so just because you know something is is like is a big signal on a population level doesn't mean that that then should directly affect what you do with an individual and then the individual is all this other stuff you figure out what is the lowest hanging fruit what can this person do what are they able to do um like within their means their environment um and again like some people say there's no point in focusing on weight because the most important factor in your health is your socioeconomic background and your environment and yes that's true but there's also plenty of data to show that regardless of your socioeconomic status or background environment, certain lifestyle factors are still beneficial if they're in place. So like the, the problem with uh, some of the statements that come out of a, a Hayes type approach are these false dichotomies, which, which like kind of separate us from being able to really do anything. And yes, like most of the stuff that you might recommend to somebody to improve their health are weight neutral, right? Exercise is a weight neutral thing over like it's going to be metabolically beneficial in the short term to improve your cardiovascular health it may long term improve body composition may or may or may not but in general it's a it's a weight neutral thing um but that doesn't mean that like body weight isn't important um and in the, in the right scenario focusing on that to try and to try and improve that where it's affecting somebody's health you know is still a tool that we should have in our toolbox mm -hmm. yeah and and i think the important thing we can state here is that it is not a moral issue. You know, if anything, the morality comes from us as a society trying to help those who need the help the most. And I think sometimes within that, that movement, you know, again, with the psychology, with the eating disorders with things like that, that it, it looks like a very simple story because again, most of the research up until about, I think about 2000 or so showed that diets were absolutely a hundred percent psychologically negative. Um, ben and I went through this. Like I went in there with that mindset myself. Like I think dieting probably is psychologically negative. I, it doesn't pan out that that is actually the case. Uh, no. Most of the research that I've come across from the last 10 years have found a positive correlation to self monitoring and, but only when people see results. So, yes, if you feel like you are dieting and you feel like you're restricting and you feel like your life is worse because of what you're doing and you're not seeing those results, you are going to have a very negative view of, of, of dieting. If 
On the other hand, you see positive results and your health markers improve and your, your, uh, if you're concerned about weight, your weight improves, all of a sudden you view it as a positive. So I think yeah, that's a really important note. There is some nice data on like cortisol, stress hormone levels in people based on their dietary restraint, which, is, which isn't correlated to actual their, so it's not like you restrain more and therefore you lose more weight and your cortisol goes up. It's a cognitive thing. So if you feel more restrained or that you're having to be more restrained, that's a stressful event, but actually you don't lose more weight one way or mm -hmm. another. So like creating these constraints and putting these stresses onto people does have like potentially have a negative effect. But if you find something that works for you and is sustainable, then yes, there actually seems to be a net benefit on, on mental health. Now, if I was going to argue with myself there, I'd say, well, that's because we're in a society that, um, praises people who lose weight or look a certain way. Therefore, you know, these improvements in mental in mental health are maybe just an expression of the society that they're within. But I can't prove that one way or another, right? Um, what matters to me is how the person feels themselves. So, even, so if if they feel, and we see like improvements in self-efficacy, uh, like subjective quality of life, if that improves, all of that's going to have a beneficial uh, psychological effect, which is also going to further improve long-term health. Which is, and that's in the end what I care about. Right. And, 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 yeah, I, I have the inner battle myself because I say, you know, a lot of times I see like, oh, look at all these positive benefits of someone losing weight. Um, and on the way down, there's so many positive reinforcements, so many positive reinforcements. Then there becomes the maintenance of someone who is now 100 pounds lighter. And in a six months or a year, nobody knows them as a 100 pounds heavier person. And there's no more of that dopamine hit of like, hey, you're so great. And, and what I see in a lot of people is a constant recycling of hey by the way this is what i used to look like this is what i used to look like and then yeah. difficulties maintaining more difficulties maintaining and it's like ooh, okay is this another cycle that we need to also so i think the way in which you lose weight also does hold a lot of of potential missteps and 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 again that's why i you know back to our societal thing mental health should also be a big part of our our physical emotional dieting all this stuff you know, and unfortunately, that's often overlooked in our healthcare system as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's why, you know, if you're doing like, um, like one, one of those, I think, one of those meta analyses looking at the effect of, of um, weight loss on mental health, but like, it's a big, it's a, it's beneficial only in those who are like seeking treatment or are engaged in that process, right? So you have a coach, or a healthcare professional or somebody who's working through it with you, right? So you have this kind of emotional support, like some kind of network to, to do that. Uh, because like when you're just white knuckling it and doing it by yourself and you, the data is super chaotic and you're not entirely sure what to do, of course that, 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 that's gonna have harm. But then, you know, again, this, this shouldn't be the person who can afford to pay right. $100 a week to see somebody to, to help support them through this, right? This, this should be something that's baked into our, into our healthcare system. And therefore, you know, first of all, the the resources need to be available regardless of somebody's ability to pay for it. And then um, also people need to be trained to do that, right? Because most physicians are going to be completely useless uh, in this process because they don't know anything. So, right. But again, this, this is, this is a, a, bottom, uh, a top down thing rather than, than a bottom up thing that needs to happen. Yeah. It's, it's again, the more you try to simplify it, the more complex it becomes. Well, <laughs> you know, Tommy, I really want to thank you for your time. Um, this was awesome. It actually went kind of a different direction than I expected, but I think it was way better. It really, uh, I, I feel like people, the, the whole purpose of starting this podcast, this is a brand new thing I'm doing, um, is really to help uh, kind of connect people with professionals experts in their area and i think too often there is this hierarchical separation of you know people see oh you know he's a doctor he's a phd he doesn't have anything for me like he's talking to you know above my head da, da, da. but but this was really broken down on a level i think that everyone can understand and, and at least see the benefits of of these really complex things that are really scary um don't need to be yeah yeah absolutely i think that's um, I think one of the reasons why, again, this is a, a hard story to sell is that, I mean, you know, people know what the answers are. It's just then <laughs> it requires, right? It, it requires, you know, right, none of this is a knowledge deficit problem. Um, it's just that you need the, 
you know, the greatest societal and environmental structures in place to allow these changes uh, to happen. And so then if, if, if people take that knowledge away, um, then maybe we can start to change stuff and, and see, see a lot more benefit, like on a wider scale. And if you, uh, if you guys are interested, if you're fitness professionals or anyone that's listening that's interested in um, learning more about this stuff, um, Tommy and Ben through Bro Research have uh, this blood chemistry course, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, you will feel really stupid when you go through this stuff. Um, I'm hoping the second time I go through it, I feel less stupid. Uh, but it's it it really it really does kind of break some of these really um, again things that kind of seem esoteric and and out of our our reach to at least understand them. Uh, and, and maybe when we look at these things as, at a population level, we can at least kind of be like, oh, OK, this this makes sense why we need to hit these these big rocks um, anywhere else that people should look for you so that they can go tell you and bitch about how you're promoting science as a double doctor. Science, science and socialism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at Dr. At Dr. Tommy Wood uh, on Instagram is probably where I don't post super frequently, but like sometimes there'll be like some big um you know, philosophical uh, post about science or data or something like that. And sometimes it would just be like pictures of me working out in the gym or my dogs. Um, yeah. So yeah, a nice mix when it, when it happens. Yeah. And, and as we drag him deeper, deeper into the, the fitness world and, and corrupt <laughs> his academic soul, um, we'll, we'll get him. He'll be on Instagram every day with shirtless selfies soon enough. All right. Tommy, not the, not the latter. Promise. Promise. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jim. This is awesome.